This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Look, we all know from experience, compliance sucks. But what if I told you that there is a better way? Our good friends at Bycheck developed the first ever managed service for SOC 2. Leverage the innovative Bycheck platform and a combined experience of over 30 years from the Bycheck team to complete your SOC 2 examination faster without the headache. The Bycheck team works as an extension of your team to prepare evidence, draft SOC 2 report sections, and provide all the necessary artifacts to your team to then provide to auditors. Reach out to the Bycheck team by dropping down into the show notes and visiting bycheck.com. Welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. Ron and I talk about being cybersecurity champions all the time. And in this episode, we brought in a three-time world champion in wrestling, Lee Kemp. He's a coach. He is an incredible example of what you can do when you set your mind to something. So we hope you enjoy part one of The Grit, being a world champion. Let's jump right in. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. We've been doing this podcast for a while, and I'm always blown away by our guests. There is no exception this episode because our guest today is Lee Kemp. Known as one of the greatest wrestlers in history, Lee was America's first three-time world champion in wrestling. He was an Olympic coach and inducted into the International Wrestling Hall of Fame as an athlete. Lee is also the author of the book Winning Gold, and more details about Lee's life can be found in the documentary film wrestled away the lee kemp story i wanted to give you a big thank you lee for jumping on the mics with us today and most importantly welcome to the show i'm really uh, ha happy to be on your show and thank you so much for inviting me absolutely coach i have to say that wrestling made me who i am today i've taken a lot of the learnings from wrestling into my career in the united states marine corps into my cybersecurity career but when i get a chance to talk to wrestlers that's such a huge spot in my heart. For the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Thank you. Awesome. I guess I'll start by saying wrestling has played such a, a huge part in my life. I always have to talk about wrestling when I talk about my life. But even before that, though, I think it's important to note that I was adopted when I was five years old. So that took me on a profound journey, too, just being adopted at age five and all that. But Anyway, and, and being a child of the 60s and seeing all the, the things that were going on with our country back then in the United States. And I'm 64 today and I have three children and I have seen a lot of life already. So I, I feel like I'm in a position to, to really give back and uh, reflect a little bit. But hopefully my life will matter. And that's where I'm at now uh, with my mindset. I want to do things to feel like I'm giving back to feel like my life has purpose. And and really what it amounts to is people getting along with people. And in wrestling, as you mentioned, early in my life, that provided such a such a playground, if you want to call it that, to learn pretty much 
most of the skills you really need in life. Just the skill sets in wrestling are very important. So anyway, that's a, a little bit about me, generally speaking. Outstanding. You talk about being adopted. When we talk about wrestlers or anyone that's doing anything great, a lot of that that drive to succeed, that drive to be great comes from much, much earlier. Do you feel like there was a point in time that really was the catalyst for you to become such a, an incredible wrestler? Where would you say that started? That's a great question. Profound question, actually. And one that I would answer very differently now at 64 years old versus maybe when I was in my 20s. I, and I always mention the fact that I was adopted for that very reason. And I think you have to almost go back that far to to somehow understand the human mind and the human desire and, and where some of your motivations come from. And I think probably some of it probably started even back then because I was in two foster homes and I was, I guess one was a large foster home. And so what that tells me is you're alone a lot, maybe you're around people, but you don't have that personal attention that you would have with your own mother and father. And I'm raised three kids and I know that interaction that goes on during that first five years of life, I probably didn't have, have it to that same interpersonal level. So I think what happens is you learn, you just learn how to be content maybe in a situation maybe where normally you might not have been. And I use an example of having raised, raised kids. You know, one of the mechanisms an infant will use to get attention is just to cry. And most of us who've raised kids, we don't want our kids crying very long. So you'll stop and figure out what's going on. But probably, I don't know this for a fact, but I would assume that probably in my case, no one, <laughs> no one came by to do much when I was crying. So you learn, I think there's coping mechanisms you learn all through life. And I, I really think that coping mechanism, learning how to be content, learning how to, if I wanted something, I just kind of probably had to get it myself. And what better skill sets and mind mental training for being in combat, like a wrestler, or even being in the military, or just being able to focus and get a, get, a, get something done that's very hard. Now, now that's a deep dive philosophically, just from my own brain. I haven't studied it or anything. And but I've coached a lot of athletes, including my own son. And the things that separate people in achievements, sometimes very small jumps, very small things uh, will separate people in terms of actual achievement. So I think those small things I learned early on and then became a part of who I am as a person. And then when I got the mentoring and the training and all that stuff, I was a perfect candidate for it. That's a great characteristic is practicing the patience. You were talking about being content with the situation that you're in. I think that's also a characteristic of grit, being able to exist and operate in the suck of things or in the greatness of things, but being okay with whatever the outcome is at the end. And I'm sure that's been a relationship with you being competitive, being able to endure the mental strain, the physical strain that you've put yourself through in performing in competitive events, but also through life. What are some stories that you can share about developing the uh, ability to be content with where you're at and to tackle things through grit? The first thing when you were saying that, the first thing that comes to my mind is anytime you have something very difficult to achieve, and my mind will go back to my early days as a kid and when I was adopted to a wonderful family, a very hardworking mom and dad. And 
My dad was from the old school, though, if you know what that means. Mm -hmm. You couldn't talk back. Very authoritarian, but loving at the same time. But he was old school. So when he told you to do something, you just did it. Even though and I grew up on a farm, too, an adopted family. They moved to a farm, of all things. So take a, a black kid from the inner city of Cleveland. And my parents were black, but they wanted a farm life. So in one summer, here I am on this farm learning how to do all this farm work. So the way I can connect the dots with being content with hard work was I wasn't getting out of the hard work with my dad. He said, do this and it had better be done. So I had to be content with the idea that I was going to be working hard. And that when I'm coaching athletes, that is one of the biggest struggles that an athlete or someone that has a big goal to, to attain the biggest struggle they have is getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's a, a word we hear a lot now, but just being comfortable with the fact that you've got this big mountain to climb. And when people anguish over that, they can't give their best performance because they're always focused on how difficult this is. When you can relax your mind and be content with what's ahead, whatever the outcome or how doesn't matter how hard it's going to be, you just know you're going to be in there to do it. And, and I guess it's an old adage of like when someone says jump, you just say how high. You're not mm -hmm. going to complain about the fact that you have to jump. You're just going to try to jump as high as you can. It seems contradictory a little bit, like being content with hard work or being content with war or being content with your future or being content with having to face something really hard. But some of the most dangerous people in the world are the ones that are quiet, the ones that are just have a quiet resolve about themselves and they're focused. I always say there's nothing more dangerous than a quiet, calm, focused individual. Obviously, you stayed focused for an exceptionally long time, being state champion, then NCAA champion, and then ultimately world champion. At each of those levels, what were the different takeaways that you had at each level of the game? Starting in high school, uh, I started only in ninth grade. And uh, which is late by today's standards. But uh, I didn't make the varsity until 10th grade, as you might imagine. And that year I had, had as many wins as losses as also you might imagine. But something miraculous, really, that's the only way I could describe it, happened between my 10th grade year and 11th grade year. And that's the story of Dan Gable. I, I have to always include him whenever I talk about my wrestling success. Everyone knows who Dan is in the wrestling world and even beyond the wrestling world, but arguably he was probably the most impactful wrestling figure on American wrestling ever. And he was known throughout the world way in the 70s, way before internet and social media. The Russians were the best in the world at wrestling, and they were they vowed they'd find someone to beat him. So that was the backdrop for the 1972 Olympic Games, which was the summer in between my 10th grade year and 11th grade year. So me coming off that 500 season, I had the chance to go to a wrestling camp that Dan Gable was at just prior to him going over to Munich. And so what I learned from him was life-changing. It changed my life. So I came back right after that two-week camp, or actually one-week camp, and set on a path to become a state champion when logically it didn't make sense to anyone but me and maybe my coach. And once my coach saw my new mindset and I had become a different person, he, he said, when you came back from that camp, you, you were just a different person. My parents said the same thing. They said they were worried for me because they just had never really seen something just abrupt and so dramatic of a change that my attitude had. But 
they were okay with it because I was pursuing a goal, worthwhile goal, wasn't anything that was destructive for me. I would have to say the mindset that I gained just from that one week period of time, being around someone who was at the top of their game and, and, and just a month before they went and won their Olympic gold medal, impacted me so much that that set me on the path. That one year, that next year, set me on the path of all the success that I had in wrestling for the rest of my career. And that when people ask me what, what was my greatest accomplishment, of course, the world championships were really noteworthy things. But when I won the state tournament as a junior in high school, beating the defending state champion and the defending runner up, when just coming off a year before that, I was a 500 wrestler. That was truly something that changed me forever. And in 1973, when that occurred, that set me on the path, I believe, to achieve everything I, I've achieved in wrestling. We talk about Dan Gable, and you got a chance to wrestle your idol, which is something that we all wish we could do. But you took it a step further and actually beat Dan Gable in that match. When you watch the match today, like I, I watched it and I thought it was an incredible match. I'd love to hear the story of the match altogether. And then I really want you to, to pay a particular amount of time on that last 30 seconds, because I think if you're a spectator just looking onto the match and you're not familiar with wrestling, there's not a lot of activity. But in fact, I feel like in that moment, you transcended wrestling. You, you tapped into a, another drive another level of balance that most people can't even comprehend but i would love to hear from your perspective what happened in that 30 seconds i appreciate that you were able to pick up on that whenever i talk about the match the last 30 seconds is really what also shaped me into being who i become but anyway i, I to tell the dan gable story i have to start my at that camp where i met him and i was there was 300 campers at the camp and you've been at wrestling camps as well and so have your listeners out of the 200 or so campers there, wrestlers there, when Dan Gable needed a person to demonstrate the wrestling holds on, I always ask people, or I always ask the question to people that are listening to this story, who do you think was his partner that he picked? Or actually, he didn't pick. I picked him. <laughs> but I, I wasn't going to allow anyone to get up there before me because I was watching to see at that moment that he was going to need someone to demonstrate the holds on. And I just stood up and he said, okay, come over here. I'll, and he demonstrated all the technique on me for the whole week in the camp. I just felt that I would learn more if he was demonstrating the technique actually on me. Now, of course, he doesn't remember that, but that's the impact that I that he had on me. It's no different than if you go to a lecture or a conference, whether it's sports, business, music, whatever. When you sit in the front, the very first seat, you're going to get, you feel the most out of it rather than sitting in the back and, and just not paying attention. So I felt that being right there with him demonstrating directly on me, I would, I, I, I would be the best being able to pick up everything he was trying to say and, and, and feel and everything like that. So that's where it all starts. He doesn't remember that. And I even asked him to work out. Here it is, Dan Gable, ready to go, win an Olympic gold medal. It, I just finished my first year of varsity. And after the <laughs> session, I go... Coach Gable, can you work out with me? <laughs> so I was that kid who was tugging on him saying, Gable, Dan Gable, can you show me this? Can you show me that? I was that kid. There's always a kid like that. There's always a person in a lecture like that. There's always someone that is interrupting, asking questions, seemingly dumb questions sometimes. 
and most of us are sitting back going, oh, man, when that person just shut up. I was that guy who was in that wrestling clinic setting, not letting anyone else have a chance to have a, a word in with Dan because I felt he was mine for that moment that I was there with him. So anyway, I always explain that because that gives you the passion that I was starting to build around wanting to learn the process of being a champion. So anyway, now fast forward to college. That was 19, 1972. Okay, that was after my sophomore in high school. So I went home and I watched them win that Olympic gold medal on TV right after the camp. So that had a profound impact on me because here I'm watching him on this black and white television, ABC Wide World of Sports, watching Nick Abel win the Olympic gold medal, knowing that I was with, with him. And he was drilling technique on me. So all that imagery helped fuel me that whole next year during my junior year in high school. So now I, I win the state tournament. Fast forward now, four years later, I'm in college. And not ever thinking I ever in my wildest dream would ever wrestle Dan Gable because he retired after 1972 anyway. So now my freshman year, I, I take second in the nationals. And I have a meeting with my coach after that. And I was so hurt and upset and frustrated that I didn't win the nationals as a freshman. My coach said, okay, Lee, what are you going to be your goals for this year, your sophomore year? I said, I want to be undefeated. I don't, don't want to lose to anybody. I was so adamant about that. So now about a week later, starting our season, my sophomore season, it was uh, night. It was the 1975, November of 75. The Olympic year was you know just right a few months later, starting that whole Olympic process of 1976. So Dan Gable decides to make a comeback. And he enters this college tournament that, that I was wrestling in called the Northern Open. And I knew but didn't know. I really wasn't paying attention to it that much. I heard that Dan was wrestling. I just assumed he might be wrestling at 149. The weight class in college is 150. But my coach said, Lee, I think you should cut down to 150. Just out of the blue, he said that to me after practice one day. And that was the weight class I wrestled my freshman year at 150. But I felt like I'd grown some. So I was going to enter the tournament at 158. It was the first college tournament and my coach was trying to get me to cut the 150 anyway so I think that was his way for sure that he thought he would get me to agree to to start the pro to cut the 150 for the whole year and I said no I don't want to cut the 50 I'm going to wrestle 58 and he said Lee remember you said you wanted to be undefeated this year you can't be undefeated now and I'm like what do you mean he said Dan Gable has entered the northern open at your weight class so I think you should cut down to 150 and right at that moment, I just felt like I wanted to wrestle. It wasn't that I thought I was going to win. It was the way I explain it to people when I get talks is, if you're a great pitcher and you have a chance to go back in time to pitch against Babe Ruth, wouldn't you want to do that? Just to compare, to see how good you were as a pitcher. So that was my mindset. I just wanted to wrestle. It was uh... So anyway, my coach desperately tries to talk me out of it. You would think I was getting ready to go be executed on that. <laughs> right. Literally. I, I, and my teammates laughed at me, literally laughed at me. And then at that week in practice, I was focusing extra hard, doing extra drills. And my teammates would come by and say, Lee, what, what are you doing that for? You're not going to beat Gable. They would say those words to me, things like that. I just stayed away from people. I just knew I wanted to wrestle. And my coach brought this up recently because of the documentary. I've had a chance to, to, to have other people tell that same story from their perspective. And I never, re I didn't re really remember this, but both Dan and I made it to the finals. Dan had pinned everybody, just like you might expect. I was in the other bracket. 
And he pinned my teammate, a guy that I had only beat three to one in our team wrestle-off. So he's like an upperclassman, a really tough guy. And, and Dan pinned this guy in a minute. And so the Heat, they're in the other bracket. So now I'm wrestling Dan in the finals. So people just stayed away from me. They just, like when I walked by them, they put their head down and walked the other way. It was, it, it, it was something that, that was just hard to just imagine and put myself back in that in that just in that scenario anyway so i win my semifinal match and dan pins this guy a teammate of mine and i did not pin my guys basically that i was wrestling but so anyway before the finals and i didn't recall this but my wrestling coach brought this up and i just believe it or not just heard this literally about a week ago because there's this series called etched in stone a series um, that's being produced by the national wrestling hall of fame and they did this really deep dive on my life and just brought out interviews from people that I never heard before. But Mike Dwayne Clevin, my college wrestling coach, said that when Lee showed up in the finals, I knew something was different because he had on his singlet that he had earned from making the junior world team. So in my mind, I'm wearing a special singlet in my mind. I'm, you know, I want to, it was like you're going to something like a big event and you want to dress the part. I, I, I don't remember that, but I guess from looking at the pictures, I said, yeah, that, that was that singlet that I, that I earned from making the junior world team that summer uh, before. So anyway, he said that I could tell before the match started, Lee wasn't thinking that I'm just going to lose to this guy. Not necessarily thinking he was going to win, but he was not thinking that I'm going to lose to this guy. It seems like a play on words, but a lot of coaches will say it like this. You'll see some athletes competing and they're not competing to win they're competing not to lose and i guess i was somewhere in the middle i didn't want to lose that's for sure but there's this thing in your brain that says cognitive dissonance maybe that that seems like you're not supposed to beat him basically so how do you get past that but then at the same time you've always wanted to win so why can't you go into this match focusing on trying to win the match and that took precedence and it was the overriding thought in my mind. Let's find a way to win this match, not find a way to how not to lose this match. So my coaches could pick up on that. And uh, when the match started, it, I noticed very early in the match that Dan had a real high pace, which is what we all expect. And But I noticed he wasn't necessarily threatening me with scoring. He was just keeping a really high pace. And I was always in great shape and I worked really hard. So that wasn't affecting me much. And a lot of people would wilt under his pressure. And after I was competing with him for a little while, after about the first minute or so, I could I realized, hey, I'm actually competing with him. And so, and the point I'm making is you take little steps of confidence. And I think part of the problem is a lot of athletes, a lot of people in general, when they have goals, they see the big goal and they reach up and try to grab that huge goal right away. And the very first thought that they have, and then if they're denied, then they give up. So my first goal, as it always is in every match and in everything I do, is let's just get better. Let's just take one step at a time. Let's just get better. If I get taken down, I got to get away. So the point I'm making is you're staying in the moment. So I stayed in the moment in that match, never looking ahead and never looking behind in case he scored or something. The fact that maybe he just took me down or something. So I guess I had this unique ability to always be focused in the moment. And to your earlier question, I'll interject that maybe that 
first five years of life allowed me to learn how to be in the moment because that's all I really had. If, if you're alone a lot because you don't have the nurturing, and I'm just making this up because I don't know, I was from birth to five, but after raising kids, I can assume that I wasn't getting nurtured like a, like, a, like a baby would be between two parents that had their first child. So you just, I think by default, you learn to just be in the moment. And as I was wrestling, Dan, I was in the moment throughout the whole match. And I ended up getting a takedown. He got a reversal. I mean, the score was close, but I was always ahead by a point in the match. And so the last 30 seconds of the match was the thing that defined, I think, who I became as, a, as an athlete and as a person that could handle pressure. It was probably 30 seconds, maybe a little bit more than 30 seconds left in the match. We were on our feet going takedowns. I was ahead by a point. If Dan scored, he was going to win. And if I held him off, I was going to win. And I can remember thinking in my mind, there's photos of both of us looking at the clock at various points in that last 30 seconds because we both knew that we, we both knew what the outcome was going to be if there was no takedown. And so the only thing that I could think of is, Lee, you did a great job. You're only going to lose by a point. All those people that say you're going to get smashed, you didn't get smashed, and you did a good job. Because I had already thought, okay, it's time for him to score now. I'm going to lose this match. But almost as quickly as I thought that, a thought rushed into my mind saying, no, you don't have to lose this match. You don't have to lose this match. And so what you see going on in that last 30 seconds of me just being in the moment. I felt like I was floating with him. He was exerting a lot of pressure. You could see me short of, at one point I put my hand on the mat, just floating. I think at any point in time, if I would have done anything different than that, it would have given him maybe an opportunity to, to score. So I just became a part of the moment. I became a part of his movements you just become part of everything that's going on and you don't hear the crowd. You don't hear anything. You just, you're just in this, this state that a lot of people talk about this Zen state, this, this state of being like in the moment. And that's exactly where I was. And then when the buzzer went off and I had won, it was almost like a bomb went off. You just heard all this loud noise. The stadium erupted. It was, it was crazy loud. But then all of a sudden, it got quiet because people had realized what had happened. And then people were actually mad that I won the match. People were like, like some coaches that I have a lot of respect for were very upset that I beat him. Uh, some teammates were like, they were like mad. It was like their idol had been, had been beaten and no one knew how to process that in that moment. And my coach actually ushered me out of the gym back into the locker room. Cause it, it was, it wasn't like people throwing anything, but it was like people were mad. Oh, he was stalling at the end. They should have called a point. Or it was like all this stuff. So in my moment of jubilation, maybe, I did have it. But then there was also people mad, <laughs> if, if you could imagine that. that, that this, wow. Anyway, I don't want to spin that to be negative. But I think it was such a shock to everyone that it had happened that they couldn't believe it. So then the only way they could explain it in their own mind is that the official had to have made a bad call. Maybe something needed to happen in their mind to allow Dan to, to win that match. I've heard people say things like, well, Dan was injured and we had a pinched nerve in his neck and he couldn't even do one push-up. But I'm thinking he was doing some pretty strong push-ups that day when he was 
<laughs> riding me. So I don't know how bad his pinched nerve must have been in his neck. But even to this day, people are, are, are just downplaying that match. And, and I don't want to build it up as being anything majorly big, but I do want to clarify things since I am on this pocket. I was 18 years old, so that in and of itself was unusual. And I only started, I hadn't been wrestling for four years yet in my life. So to have only been wrestling less than four years and to wrestle someone of that caliber. It was pretty remarkable. And I also add that about four months earlier, I had completely dislocated my elbow. So anyone listening to this podcast, I guess I'm, I'm just, I've never said this to anyone. So I guess I could say that I wasn't a hundred percent either with my elbow. I couldn't straighten it all the way, but everyone wrestles injured. So the fact that he may have been injured, he wrestled long enough to know that maybe I shouldn't have wrestled that match if that wasn't a hundred percent. We both entered the match. So we both wrestled and the last part of the Gable story I will say, though, is I tried out for that Olympic team. Dan did retire after that. I ended up being an alternate on that team. I was 19. I, I was second. And so I was uh, the alternate. So I went to to uh, Montreal and Stan Desik, who beat me to make the team, he won a bronze medal. And I actually had beaten Stan one of the wrestle-off matches. That was close, but Stan was definitely better than me. But anyway, at that camp, Dan was one of the coaches. And we hadn't spoke since our match we just we had we, we would look at each other with this look like it wasn't a bad look but we were just a curious look we would just because we were at tournaments dan was coaching but that was his first year coaching in iowa as the head coach or i think he might have been the assistant coach then but so we were both in the big 10 i would see him at all the events i saw him at the national tournament i ended up wrestling several of his wrestlers the whole bit the wrestler i lost to as a freshman in the national tournament was a dan gable wrestler Chuck Yegla. So I would see Dan quite a bit, actually. So anyway, after one of the Olympic practices, I was on the team as an alternate. We had one of the training camps at the University of Wisconsin where I'm at school, so it was perfect. And so I was always typically the last person to leave the locker room. I just took my time. And this day was no different. The Olympic practice was over. I was just, since I was at home at Wisconsin, I was at my locker just taking my time. And I thought everyone was gone. And my wrestling coach, Dwayne Clubman, just appeared out of nowhere, it seems like. He said, Lee, I, Dan's in the restroom. I think he wants to work out with you. And I, I didn't know anybody was in the restroom because it was dark in there, actually. And then I looked around, and my coach was gone. He left. So I put my shoes back on, and I walk in the wrestling room. And right in the back in the corner, Dan was there shadow wrestling just by himself. And so I walked over to him, and I just looked at him. He looked at me, and I said, you want to wrestle? <laughs> and, 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 and we did. And I, I can't remember which Rocky movie it was. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. Apollo Creed and Rocky, right? The movie ends with them just on their own by themselves in a dark gym, just the two of them. Yep. I, I can't remember if that was Rocky two, maybe Rocky three, Rocky three. But Dan and I did that. We, there's no, and my coach didn't even hang around to watch it. He just left. And the room was dark because the lights were off. It was just like, it, it was just the two of us. We wrestled for probably an hour. And just trying to kill each other, sort of. And I learned so much there because Dan was trying to understand in his mind, is this kid that good or did I slip that bad? I don't know. He he just wanted to prove to himself that maybe that he was still Dan Gable. And I will say he got the better of me that practice, but but I I, I scored as well. We both I think we both learned a lot that day and, and from that point on we always been friends. He was my coach, national coach for the world teams that I won gold medals in. He was the Olympic coach in, in 1980, the one that we boycotted. And we're friends to this day. And his book, A Wrestling Life 2, he talks a little bit about the match. Now, there's a photo of him and me when we were younger. It was maybe 
around the time we wrestled. And in my book, Winning Gold, Dan has a, he was very nice enough to provide a, a kind of a, a forwarding message in the book. But that's my Dan Gable story. Amazing. It, it sounds like the story of moving Mount Everest. You experienced, people witnessed it. You literally moved a mountain. And the way that it sounds like you moved it is through the consistency and incremental improvements, getting better every day, understanding his game and incorporating it into your own game. And the way that you move a mountain really at the end of the day is piece by piece and climbing the summit and moving that mountain over and over again. But from a witness perspective, seeing you move the mountain, seeing you beat one of the greatest wrestlers in history and becoming one of the greatest wrestlers in history, it must have meant a lot for the people that were around you, whether it was your coach, your community, they probably had some impact. Can you describe some of the impact that you've seen by displaying just that competitive nature? I'm sure it it enabled a lot of people to think differently about their life, maybe even seeing someone like them that can overcome so many obstacles. Do you have any stories there? This, the one thing I can say is a former teammate of mine, Pat Christensen, who went on to, to become a national champion, he says that having me on the team elevated his thinking to the point that he felt that enabled him to, to believe he could be a national champion. And I'll say that at the University of Wisconsin, the first national champion they've ever had in the history of the school was the year before I got there, Rick Lowinger, who was a guy that, that I had a chance to, to be mentored by a little bit. But the next year, I was I took second. So Wisconsin had only had one national champion the year prior in the history of the school. My sophomore year, the year I beat Gable and all that, Wisconsin had three national champions. I was one of three. So Pat Christensen tells me, Lee, you being on the team gave us all the, I don't know, the desire or the, the hope or the, the realization that all of us can be champions. And I've, I've, I noticed that every year I was on the team, we had another national champion. My junior year, we had two champs. In my senior year, we had two champs. So to have multiple champions from one school is always a very difficult accomplishment, really. And, and I think... Dan had a lot of influence over people in that way. Look at how he inspired me. Look how he inspired all these other people. Just his presence inspired generations of wrestlers to achieve more than they ever could. I know that if I hadn't had that meeting and that opportunity to be with Dan in that one week and in the summer between my two years of high school, I don't think, I just don't know where those thoughts would have come from. So I think being around me maybe at the time gave athletes a chance to believe that they could maybe be a, a world champion, Olympic champion. And I just always had that mindset. Every match that I wrestled, I always had the mindset that well, it's very possible for me to win this match. I know that we can't predict the future. We don't have the ability to do that. None of us do, even though we can you know, talk whatever we want to say. But none of us have that ability. We don't have crystal balls. But one thing we know for sure is that it's, it could be possible. And what are the ways it could be possible? I put in the work. I'm ready. I'm, you know, all the different things of preparation. If you, if you check all those boxes, then why not? Of course it's possible that you could do it. The problem that I see with a lot of people is they don't check the boxes. They check very few boxes. They only check the boxes that they like. And then when they get into the tough and the difficulty of actually trying to achieve what they want to achieve, they're not totally prepared. 
prepared. So really, their mind defeats them because their mind actually tells them, no, this isn't possible anymore. No, you're tired now. No, you really can't beat this guy. Or you can't go to medical school. You can't start this business. So I, I guess I just keep going back to you have to do all the work, of course. That's just a prerequisite and more. And you have to believe it's possible. I always believed it was possible. And I've had people tell me this, especially in this, in my documentary and in this etch and sewn, hearing other people that I respect talk about me has given me an opportunity to frame a little bit of my thinking so that I can give it back to other people and, and give back. And that is, again, I'll just say it again, it's you just have to believe something's possible. And But if you don't believe something's possible, it's never gonna happen. We hope you enjoy part one of this incredible story. Be sure you stay tuned for part two coming out later this week. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.